We are again privileged and blessed to assemble even as we are, and several have made mention and note of that fact, not only the announcements, but also in the other aspects of our service. What a delightful experience and enterprise it has already been. It certainly is already wonderful to be able to say how terrific it's been for us to be here. We also, of course, always look forward to the opportunity of allowing God to challenge us in one way or another by virtue of His Word And this evening. I would invite you to turn to one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, at least for the next few moments tonight, the prophet Ezekiel. As you know, that's the second to the last of the major prophets, commencing with Isaiah, terminating with Daniel. But we do appreciate that this prophet Ezekiel, sometimes is an unsung book in the Old Testament, sometimes a book that we cast a bit less of the spotlight upon. But nonetheless, 48 scintillating, compelling, moving chapters and we find all throughout the powerful presence of the God of heaven. A God who did not forsake and forget His people, but rather had some amazing lessons for them to appreciate and certainly by inspiration for you and me as well. Tonight as we consider a lesson entitled Ezekiel and His Work, our primary focus actually will be just on the first few chapters of the book. But in so doing, so much more that we might be able to see assisting us as we think about this noble Old Testament book. As I mentioned already, the book of Ezekiel has in many ways a rather moving drama. It moves rather quickly. There are scenes to be appreciated. One can almost envision much of that which takes place as you picture Ezekiel doing this or as you picture God telling him to then act in a certain way. And all the while, there was an object lesson. The people were to appreciate that he was doing this for a reason. Quite often, he set forth the message that God had him to present, but he did so by signing it or signifying it or undergoing some activity in which the lesson was dramatically pictured to them. Tonight, as we give some thoughts about that as well, I think it fair to say Ezekiel was one of those Old Testament giants. We're so accustomed to being like Moses and Joshua, others perhaps like Elijah. But surely among the prophets, Ezekiel must be lifted high as truly a noble and godly man whose efforts perhaps only eternity will truly reveal the greatness of them. Four things that I would invite us to at least give thought to as we consider Ezekiel the man and Ezekiel his work. The first one is this one. It perhaps will go without saying that a small smattering of history might be of some assistance to us to appreciate the nature of the book, the characteristic in which it was presented, and some gigantic lessons that can be so meaningful to us. I've entitled this section of the lesson, Ezekiel the Captive. I did that for the following observation. That during much of the time that we actually encounter this book, Ezekiel himself was not in the most pleasant of circumstances. He was not in the friendly confines of that which you and I would call his homeland. He often, in fact, was a captive. That, in fact, sheds a fair amount of light on the grandeur of his message. Let's build that thought in the following way. First, according to the very first verse in the book, we appear to be given a kind of date. Ezekiel informs us there it was in his 30th year. And so it would, it would lead us to appreciate that he himself was apparently born some 30 years previous to this time, which would have been in 622 B.C. 
that takes on an additional appreciation when we recognize the one who is reigning on the Judean throne at that time and the kind of circumstances surrounding Judah. The man on the throne had begun that occupation in 640 B.C. His name was Josiah. You and I immediately recognize him as one of those good kings of Judah. And there weren't all that many of them. A man who, remember, came to the throne at the age of eight, and eight years later he began to purge Israel from idolatry. And not only that, shortly thereafter he began to pursue the God of heaven, and he did so even against those thoughts that would be his forebears. We soon learn, in addition to that, that while they were renovating the temple, the book of the law was found, and much to the people's surprise, Josiah recognized the worth and grandeur of it and began to move Israel into the keeping of God's law again. He truly was a noble soul. We notice then that when Ezekiel was born, there was a good man on the throne, a good leader who could assist and direct and encourage the following of the ways of God. But you'll notice rather quickly, things began to take a different turn. As we look at some of the other contemporaries of Ezekiel, Jeremiah was a bit older than he, and Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry in 626 B.C., and thus, for about four years, Jeremiah had already been proclaiming the boundless grandeur of God. He had been setting forth the greatness of God and the people's need to repent. I'm sure as Ezekiel grew up, he heard Jeremiah many times. After all, they were both from roughly the same area. I feel sure that often... Ezekiel's heart had been stirred as he heard Jeremiah's preaching, as he heard Jeremiah stand in the temple complex and admonish the people to change their ways and to recognize the greatness of God and that they should forsake their selfishness and their sin and follow Him. It is the case beyond all of that that difficulties began to arise. I mentioned in 622 when Ezekiel was born, things were well in the kingdom. The economy was good. Circumstances were rather productive and efficient. All seemed to be well, but notice it wasn't too many years. Roll forward with me to the year 609. You'll notice that's only some 13 years later. In 609, a mighty army was of not only existent in the north, it had begun to rear its powerful head, and there were many nations that were already affected and influenced by it. It was that army you and I will call Babylon. By that time, Babylon had already become sufficiently strong that she was capable of battling Egypt and won. At the famous Battle of Carchemish in 609, Babylon defeated Egypt one of the few times Egypt was ever defeated by another enemy. At this point, with the grandeur of that power, we notice that little Jerusalem and little Judah were riding directly in the path of Babylon. Four years later, 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar brings the Babylonian army and heads straight for Jerusalem. What are the people to do? They have no army to hold off an empire like Babylon. They have no means whereby to keep an enemy like that at bay. Can you imagine Ezekiel watching over the city as the armies make their way in? As they begin to do damage to the temple? As they begin to haul off so many of the people captive? In fact, I've often wondered, do you suppose that Ezekiel knew Daniel? Daniel was hauled off into captivity in 605. 
Maybe Ezekiel knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe he knew all of them. And if he did, he watched them hauled off by Babylon into captivity, never to see them again. How would you have felt to have watched your empire, your whole life, crumble around you? Not only that. You'll notice beyond that, when Ezekiel, of course, by this time, he had reached that age of 17 to witness that initial destruction of Jerusalem. But you'll notice that wasn't all he saw. Last point on that slide. Eight years later, Nebuchadnezzar came back. He had not done a complete destruction before. He had only, of course, let the people know that the empire was great. In 597, he came back. This time, of course, you appreciate Ezekiel was 25 years old. And this time, Ezekiel was taken captive. 2 Kings 24, 14 tells us 10,000 at least were taken captive on this occasion, and Ezekiel was among the number. So now we see that this gentleman, this man, this one who had such opportunity and privilege was now taken away from all of it. Off into captivity, he himself went. As you think about the ideas behind that thought, isn't it then so impressive to consider this idea? First of all, as we give thought to Ezekiel the captive, I would ask you to ponder what we've just said. Put yourself in Ezekiel's position for a moment. As we'll learn a bit later in the lesson, Ezekiel himself was a priest. He was an individual who no doubt looked forward to the opportunity that would be his to officiate at the temple. I'm sure he was schooled and reared and educated with the thought and idea in mind that one day I will be privileged to do this. And you'll notice that kind of work doesn't begin until one is age 20. And yet at age 17, Nebuchadnezzar came just when perhaps he was old enough to soon to be ready. And then all his dreams and all of his aspirations were quashed. May I submit that some of those thoughts perhaps challenge us as well. Ezekiel found himself in circumstances that were not of his choosing. He found himself in rather dire positions that were by no means convenient and by no means pleasant. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 1 will inform us he literally was by the river Kibar in Babylon trying to minister and serve to those captives. Hundreds and hundreds of miles from the temple hundreds and hundreds of miles from that place that he had known and loved so much. Isn't it still impressive then to read a book like this one in which here's a man who was unfazed by these circumstances. He poured out his heart to the Lord in faithfulness and served Him all the days of his life. He sought, in fact, to help the people understand too that these circumstances were brought on them by their sin. It's not that God had forsaken them. It's that they, by virtue of their sin, had brought this judgment upon themselves. And they needed to repent, and they needed to serve the Lord, and they needed to again appreciate the grand promise. You know as well as I that that lesson would not have been received well. How often do you suppose Ezekiel, by that river Kibar, heard the captives say, God's forgotten us. God's forsaken us. He doesn't love us anymore. Look what He let happen to us. And yet time and again, Ezekiel was challenged, commissioned, and charged by God. You hold out the love and judgment of me to this people. It won't be easy, Ezekiel, but you're the man for the job. 
What about you and me today? Are you and I in a position sometimes to allow circumstances that may not be favorable or pleasant or convenient, but do we allow them to deter us from faithfulness? Do we sometimes throw up our hands in disgust, disappointment, and discouragement and say, I've done all I'm going to do. I've had enough, God. If so, shame on us. Isn't it true what Ezekiel did? And what did their Lord do? Did he give up in disgust as the shadow of the cross hanged in his future? Surely we know that he didn't. In fact, he trudged directly toward that eventuality knowing full well what it meant for him because he knew what it meant for us. Isn't it true in light of those things that the Bible is filled with individuals who encourage us and who are ready to stand proverbially at our side and say, don't you forget about the reward that awaits the faithful. In fact, how does those first two verses of Hebrews 12 present that thought to us? Often we place the emphasis upon the latter part of verse 1, but may we not forget the opening part of it. It reads like this, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Did you notice it began by saying, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Those precious and faithful individuals who throughout the ages have stood steadfast, strong and true. And of course Hebrews 11 gives us a record of that honor roll of faith. All of those from Abel all the way down to Gideon and others. May you and I be strong, intended to also find ourselves in a number not unlike that one. May we thus perhaps appreciate this final thought on, the, on that idea. May we have a determined mindset. It is true that often one of the best defenses against those possible shenanigans of the devil is a strong and determined mind. If you and I are prepared for when he may attempt his attack we may be far more likely to not only see the way of escape, but not only that, to of course emerge victorious throughout it. Determination. It would seem all 48 chapters of Ezekiel detail a man of conviction, a man of devotion and dedication and courage. You and I as Christians, perhaps right now, find things convenient. I don't believe any of us would question that. We can meet here without any fear of military trying to stop us. We can meet here without some court in our land declaring such as unconstitutional and unworthy. What if that day were to come when things were not so convenient? Would you and I still be faithful? Would you and I still be as determined? I hope we, like Ezekiel, would be just as fervent then as we are now. Our eternal salvation would depend on it. But what else might we learn from Ezekiel? Not only was he a man that was a captive, we also learn in chapter 24 about a man that was, in that was a husband. Indeed, isn't it interesting that among all the prophets of the Old Testament, many are the times we really are told precious little about their families. We know that some of them were married, but quite frankly we don't know much about most of them, at least in regard to that question. But that cannot be said for Ezekiel. 
This book informs us identically and directly that Ezekiel was a married man. And in fact, not only a married man, he appears, according to Ezekiel 24, 16, to have been exceedingly happily married. In fact, on that occasion, as God addressed the prophet, he made reference to Ezekiel's wife and said that she, in fact, was the desire of thine eyes. It would appear, due to the context of that verse and those that surround it, that this was an occasion in which his wife was in many ways a great and precious treasure and prize to him. He cherished her, he loved her, he honored and adored her. Many things might be said about that that we'll note in just a moment. But isn't it at least fair to say this? You'll also notice God said something else in that same context. In the midst of all these other problems and troubles that Ezekiel had to face, God also informed him of something else. The day came when God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, this one that's the desire of your eyes, the desire of your life, She's going to die. The next morning, Ezekiel got up. He went about the activities of sharing with the people the information that God had delivered to him. And that afternoon, his wife died. She passed away. He was now plunged into loneliness. He was now, of course, in a position whereby he needed to continue his service to the Lord by ministering to this people, but that precious one who had stood by his side was no longer there. That chapter has much to say about Ezekiel's response to his wife's passing, and much of that really was a commanded thing by God. There was an object lesson in it. Here are some thoughts I would invite you to consider with me. First of all, doesn't this highlight yet again, perhaps in a simple way, about the blessedness of a godly marriage. Many of us appreciate the wonderful blessing of that thing, and the Bible highlights it so frequently. From Genesis 2, verses 18 and onward, we learn even in that second chapter, do we not, about that occasion in which, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleaving to his wife, and they, of course, shall be one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. Do we not read in... Proverbs 18, 22, that whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Do we not read in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all, the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We know that Peter himself was a married man, Matthew chapter 8. We know from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that many of the other apostles too were married men. All of that reminds us that a family is truly a grand blessing, isn't it? When that husband and wife are bound, of course, to the attributes and law of God, just as surely as they're bound to one another, that makes for a rich, rich existence indeed. It might be in light of that we can appreciate that that is a proving ground for, of course, those men that would be the leaders of the church. An elder, isn't it said of him that he must be the husband of one wife? He must have faithful and believing children? And isn't it said of the deacon, he too must, of course, be a married man, and furthermore, that he too must have children? You notice that God then made the statement that if a man can't lead his own household, how could he lead the church of God? We see again what a great blessing to assist a man in his maturity, his leadership capabilities. Isn't it interesting in light of all of that, that we notice perhaps this lesson as well. Even with the passing of his wife 
and the tragedy that came from that event. Even in the chapters that follow, we seemingly do not see Ezekiel shy away from the work of the Lord. When you and I are called to face disasters and crises and catastrophes, may you and I remain as faithful as he did. It may involve our health. It may involve the health of a loved one. May we, as much as is the power within us, to remain faithful to that highest of all callings, that calling, of course, to be a faithful servant of the Lord. It's interesting that as you consider Ezekiel's reaction, response to that, he was overcome. But you'll notice, if you read the rest of that 24th chapter, that it's a gentleman of which we can also say this. We find no excuses that he made. Sometimes, are you and I quick to make excuse? We don't find excuses lifted very highly in the Word of God, do we? We seemingly find, in fact, God often looking very negatively upon them. But are you and I guilty of that? I can't come on Wednesday night for this reason or that reason. I can't, in fact, participate in that program. I can't involve myself in that other work for this reason or that reason. I have a hangnail, so I can't make it to Bible study. Are we too quick sometimes to allow excuses to deter us from what we know the Lord expects of us? We appreciate, do we not, that Ezekiel made no excuses. While there by the river Kibar, as uncomfortable as it must have been, he labored day by day, week by week, to try to assist this people. Maybe another lesson. In addition to these two attributes... Ezekiel the captive, Ezekiel the husband. Perhaps it's time to cast the spotlight on that brief comment we had mentioned earlier, namely Ezekiel the priest. We are expressly told in chapter 1 verse 3 that Ezekiel was a priest. And again, we each understand from our study in Leviticus and Numbers what that would have meant in terms of the expectation of his life. We are told in chapter 4 verse 14 of this same book that Ezekiel from an early age had prepared himself to serve as a priest. He had maintained purity. He had in fact developed his capabilities in such a way he'd be ready to occupy that beautiful and wonderful officiated position once the time came. Sad thing is for him the time didn't come the way he expected. In fact, consider this with me. As we've already commented, at the age of 17, he saw Jerusalem attacked that first time. Eight years later, at the age of 25, it was attacked again, and off he went to Babylon. It would seem he never had the privilege of officiating at that temple that he no doubt had so often looked forward to doing. Do you suppose he was filled with despair, disappointment? Have you ever, in fact, made plans, perhaps for a long period of time, for something, and then the plans fall all around you? You aren't able to do what you had wanted to, what you planned to do? It can be disappointing, can't it? And sometimes if we aren't careful, if it's overwhelming enough, we can be crushed. Our faith might, in fact, be an aftermath. May we, like Ezekiel, though, recognize God has another plan. And whatever God has in store, you and I will find a capability by His providence and His blessing to participate in a way that pleases, honors, and glorifies His cause. That's what Ezekiel did. 
I'm sure had you asked him at the age of 10, will you ever be in Babylon? I have a feeling he just said no. Will you ever, in fact, be taken away and hauled off? I'm sure he just said no. But of course he was. I would use that particular point to ask us to notice the preparation that was a part of Ezekiel's life. He was able to adapt and adjust, and though he found himself in Babylon, he still ministered to this people in the way God commissioned and called him. Do you and I prepare ourselves in a similar way to serve him? I hope that we do. I trust that we do. That kind of preparation is a sweet thought, isn't it? And may I say, especially to those that may be a bit younger, don't overlook your early years. Don't think you've got to be 30 or 40 or 50 to serve the Lord. While you're 13, 16, while you're in high school and a young adult, you can have an amazing impact for the cause of Christ. But may I say, you'll need to prepare yourself. Don't do things to your body now that are going to cause your health to suffer later and will deter you from the service you otherwise could have done. And furthermore, as you make consideration of that preparation, recognize the strength of your mind while you're young. I assure you, once those years begin to come, that mind won't work quite as efficiently as it once did. Use those early years to embed as much of the Word of God in your heart as you can. Commit it to memory. Give consideration to it. For then you'll be able to remember it far better. It will in fact be a richer part of your life and you'll be able to recollect it far more easily. How about all of us, whether young or old? Maybe Ezra serves as a grand example. What is said about him in Ezra chapter 7 verses 6 and 10? We find here another gentleman who found himself in some somewhat unpleasant circumstances and yet the text says in verse 6, Ezra was a ready scribe. The word ready means he was prepared. He was ready at a moment's notice, of course, to do the work of God in the circumstances in which he found himself. Four verses later in Ezra 7 verse 10, we notice that this same man Ezra is there described like this. He had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Do you and I prepare our heart? Or do we too often fill it with things of the world? We are admonished, aren't we, to think on that which is true and honest and lovely and just and of good report, Philippians 4.8. May you and I be as earnest to prepare ourselves as Ezekiel was himself. That degree of preparation perhaps brings us to notice how often preparation appears as a description important in serving God. For worship, we're told we need to prepare because it must be done both in truth and in spirit, John 4, 24. And when we give, we're told that involves a purposing in our heart to give as we've been prospered. That involves preparation, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. One can look at the other attributes of worship and appreciate the preparation that's involved in them. The fourth and final observation about Ezekiel that we shall make tonight comes as we look not at Ezekiel the captive or the priest or the husband, but rather the prophet. 
He, of course, was one of the noble prophets of the Old Testament. We find so many of the things that he uttered, and he did so in such a memorable way. But you'll notice that he specifically, by God, was commissioned with a message. Chapter 2, verse 5, as was read in our hearing earlier this, this evening, there God said to him, They shall know a prophet has been in their midst. I wonder, as Ezekiel was walking down the street before he was taken captive, you suppose others would watch, there's the prophet. I would suspect that Ezekiel's lifestyle, his conduct, his demeanor, the way in which he conducted himself was a continual example of godliness. And isn't it true that something similar should be characteristic of us? May our language then not ever deter others from recognizing the greatness of God. May our actions not ever cause them to think we're hypocrites. May the things that you and I are seen doing, may they not cause somebody to stumble. They shall know a prophet has been in their midst. That is said more than once though concerning Ezekiel. And isn't it true in chapter 3 verse number 4, God specifically said this to Ezekiel. Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. Ezekiel was told exactly, you deliver my words, not your speculations, not your considerations, and certainly not your opinions. You deliver my word, and I use that to entitle this interesting concluding thought. It is a breath of fresh air when we see in the book of Ezekiel, this emphasis on the unfailing Word of God. I chose that word again for this reason. Here was a people who had been hauled off from their beloved homeland. A people forcibly taken into captivity. Maybe some of them were thinking, God's Word has failed. Ezekiel throughout this book encouraged them, God hasn't failed you. You failed Him. You sinned against Him. These actions from Babylon are a judgment upon you because your sins have separated you from God. It is interesting, isn't it, that the people, the Jewish individuals, had so often thought about certain verses in the Old Testament. It seems as if they cast a spotlight upon verses like, God will always be with you and He will bless you and your fields will be productive and your families will be productive but they forgot that there was a condition that preceded that. If you will obey Him, He will bless you in that way. Read again Deuteronomy 28 beginning in verse 15 and see if it doesn't begin, if you will not obey Him, this is what will befall you. And the very captivity that we now see in the days of Ezekiel was the very thing that in that book in Deuteronomy Moses had prophesied and predicted. Interesting then to reflect again on God's unfailing Word. God had kept His promise and His Word to the people of Judah just as surely as He keeps it to you and me. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever, 1 Peter 1.25. And as surely as we see a passage like that one nestled in the New Testament, may we never forget that this Word is indeed that special. It is unfailing. That leads us to see some of these final and concluding thoughts. I would ask you to appreciate them with me like this. The scene that we have portrayed so far is a scene in which these captives were gathered there as a result of the judgment due to their sins. 
And yet you and I know that there is a final day of judgment awaiting every individual who has ever lived. A day of judgment. A day of reckoning. A final appointment that will be kept. In fact, in Hebrews 9.27, we are somewhat mentioned of it in these words. It says, doesn't it, that each one is subject to death. But quickly it goes on to say, after this cometh the judgment. Are you and I ready for that judgment? Are we faithful husbands, gentlemen in this audience? Are all of us faithful servants of the Lord in the capacities that God has allowed us to enjoy? Even when dire circumstances come, like captivity for Ezekiel, are you and I still faithful? Or have we given up? Have we cast in the lot, thrown in the tile, and said, God, I either can't or I won't? If you're in that condition tonight, I hope that you'll return to your first love. I hope at once tonight you'll come down this aisle and let us pray with you and for you and to instill within you again a heart of belief, a heart of courage and confidence. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 still reads it like this. Let us be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May you and I then from Ezekiel learn again these lessons that we have appreciated tonight. I've listed them one last time on that slide. Ezekiel is such an interesting character, we really have only skimmed the surface of that book. But I hope we've each been at least encouraged to have an appetite for that which the book continues to reveal. And perhaps in future opportunities we too will look at sketched lessons as it relates to that Old Testament prophet. For this very night, let me close the lesson by asking of each of us, as we did earlier, Ezekiel the captive, Ezekiel the husband, Ezekiel the priest, and Ezekiel the prophet, the avenues and attributes of life, we seemingly find a man determined to serve the Lord in every capacity. May that be the same of you and me. And if so, we too, like him, can be a great impact and influence for those about us, our families and otherwise. But the observation is, if you're lacking in those regards... If those matters are of a private nature, go to your Heavenly Father personally. Approach Him and recognize He will have an ear to hear and listen, and He will provide the necessary strength to make reparation for those things. But if your transgressions have been public, if others are aware of some of those mistakes you've made, perhaps they too have shed tears as they watched from a distance the sore and pitiful decisions you've made, don't languish in that. Jesus died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to stay that way. Why not come back to the one that loves you, the one that died for you, the one who wants you to be in heaven with Him? That plan of salvation that involves that second law of pardon, if you again have wandered from the fold of safety, just like Ezekiel pleaded with those people to return to the Lord that loved them, why don't you do the same? If we can help you tonight by prayer, this hymn of encouragement has been chosen. We'd be honored even now to welcome you home along with the Lord. Won't you do that while together we stand and sing?